Hello, I'm Andrew Skipper. I'm head of the Africa practice at Hogan Lovells and have wide-ranging Afro experience myself from business to art and culture. I'm co-vice chair of the Smithsonian National Museum of African Art and recently became co-chair of the UK government's Africa Investors Group. I've been having conversations with some of Africa's top business minds and investors, people who are deeply committed to building on the continent. They're certainly pulling no punches about the problems, but they're also spotting enormous opportunities. Today, I turn to Rakesh Wahi, who is the founder of ABN Group, a media holding company for CNBC Africa and Forbes Africa. He's also the co-founder of the Transnational Academic Group, an education group that includes universities. Rakesh, welcome to this podcast. It's a great pleasure to talk to you again. Uh, good morning, Andrew. It's wonderful uh, to be back with you. And thank you very much for the opportunity. Rakesh, it's, I mean, we've spoken a number of times this year. It's been a crazy year, but, but it's one which has thrown up opportunities in some places and obviously presented serious challenges elsewhere. You have a really broad portfolio by sector and geography, which must have been affected in different ways from CNBC through tech and education. Could you give me a little outline of, of, of these and also say how you've spent the last months and has your focus changed at all during this difficult period? Well, I guess, you know, we are uh, a very diversified uh, family holding. And when I say diversified, not just by industry, but also geographically. And uh, our IT business is large in Asia. Uh, you know, with, uh, we distribute Microsoft in eight countries, starting from Sri Lanka all the way to the Philippines. We have a software development center in uh, Sri Lanka, as well as uh, uh, a document management business there. And on the media side, uh, you know, as you rightly pointed out, we've got the franchise for CNBC and for Forbes. On education, we've got two universities. One is in Dubai and then the uh, partnership with Lancaster in Ghana. Now, you know, looking specifically at where we are today uh, and looking back, I've been in, uh, as an entrepreneur, I've been in business for the last 30 years. Uh, we've been through different cycles. And if you remember 1991, when we had the Gulf War yeah. here, we had the Asian crisis in 94. In 2000, you know, we had the uh, internet uh, uh, bubble that burst and then the great financial crisis in 2008. Mm. And in each of these, you know, we faced different kinds of issues, uh, either it was geographic or very industry specific. Sometimes more than one industry was impacted. But this time what happened when the pandemic hit, uh, you know, everything went wrong simultaneously. Uh, you know, yes. uh, we didn't know where it was coming from. I think everybody went into a bit of a shock uh, when it started out. It took us almost about a month to really understand the implications of where we were because we didn't really understand that travel was going to stop completely, mobility is going to stop, we're going to be working from home. There were so many things that people had to adapt to. And so problems were not just for business owners, it was for governments, it was for the financial services industry. Everybody was going through their own shocks during this period. Uh, what we did as a business was looked at one core value, went back to basics straight away and said, look at business continuity at the core of everything you need to do and yes. put steps and measures in place to survive. And so we immediately went into a mode to preserve cash, making sure that you know we were paying where it was essential. The SME sector, we made sure that small businesses were fully supported as always. We continued paying salaries of our staff, but then with a lot of the other people, we went back and started uh, renegotiating uh, deferred payments and payment terms so that we could look at business survival. And we had to manage this differently for different businesses, because if you look at media, advertising was stopped 100%. 
So we almost went into zero revenue starting off from March, April, May, June. Now, we didn't know how long it's going to take. So I immediately got my senior teams and all the businesses and said, look, plan for the next 24 months. We have to look at what happens with different scenarios if you're going to be hurt over the next 24 months in terms of your consumers or your customers and you're going to have gaps in income. And that's how we did our planning. Some of the things that came out immediately was that, you know, a lot of our businesses require mobility, like student mobility was stopped. So the education business was impacted differently from media. The tech business has a lot of opportunities, but you couldn't go to client offices to service them. So there are a lot of issues that we were finding that were coming up, which were nuances specific to every business, but we had to get past it. And, you know, as a business leader, your main function as an entrepreneur, the owner of the business is to sit back and look at, you know, how you're going to survive through this period. But a few things that are consistent now is one, technology is something that is going to be part of our lives. It's been catalyzed to a different level. The workforce is going to be a huge part of our future. Multi-skilling them and re-looking at, you know, KPIs of our people and making sure that we're able to manage them in the working from home environment. And then trying to see how we reinvent and adapt to these changing paradigms into the future. So a lot of my time has gone planning this and we are finding that we're gradually getting back. You can't say to normal, but you're being able to get back in a way that you can start looking at possibilities into the future. That's a fantastic summary of how one should look at these things because it's lifting your head up and looking ahead rather than just worrying about what's going on now, isn't it? Which is so important. And I think, Rakesh, you're, you're famously upbeat and positive about Africa and have publicly stated that one of the jobs of CNBC is to report on the positive, not in a, an inauthentic way, but in a balanced, positive and authentic way. Um, how have you seen it possible to deliver this positive message? I mean, something of that actually comes out of what you've just said about the future. But, but give me a view on um, the positivity about Africa. I guess, you know, it's again putting a bit of perspective, uh, Andrew. Mm. In general, you know, as a human being, I feel that just being critical without providing practical solutions is often uh, counterproductive. So just speaking against a circumstance or highlighting problems, even you know, when you're looking at countries going through problems, uh, more specific, you know, with Nigeria, the way they're dealing with things right now, nobody wants these things to happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, no government wants these things to happen. So I think it's about looking at things in a very balanced manner. And, you know, from the time I came into Sub-Sahara Africa in 2004, we saw that, you know, there was so much opportunity in the continent. And the only thing we heard about when I was sitting in Dubai was about stories of, you know, corruption and crime, and, you know, bad leadership. And, uh, and you were almost, almost apprehensive about investing in the continent. Uh, but what, what we looked at is, there is so much that is happening here that you've got to put the right kind of messaging. And it's important to report things that are going wrong, but you also got to provide a very balanced way of, uh, uh, you know, looking at what's happening in the market. And we've done that historically, whether it was when Boko Haram was going on in Nigeria during the World Economic Forum or the elections in Kenya in 2008. We've always carried a balanced view on what's happening so that people know that, look, there's a problem, but there are also solutions that people are working with. And you can't paint the same solutions or provide those cookie-cutter kind of solutions uh, mm. to African problems because you can't bring those developed country solutions into Africa. Uh, so if you just look at 
you know, 2020 uh, and what we've been through uh, currently, uh, there is yeah. not a single person, as I had said earlier, who was prepared for this. Nobody could have said, you know, 100 years back, the person would have to be 115 if they could give solutions. There's nobody like that here. There's no economy in the world that is doing well. So just look around today. Uh, even the developed countries, you know, whether it's the European Union, you look at the US, uh, you look at other developed markets like Japan, everybody is going through their own problem. And nobody was prepared. And everybody thought that, you know, we were entering into an era of uh, doomsday kind of a situation. And when you look at all this that is happening, it became a, you know, and what surprised me the most at this point was that everybody seemed to be saying that you are doing well if you're better than the others. So it's a relative performance that we started measuring and not the fact that you were actually growing. You were just managing things better than others. And this talks a lot to leadership and various other things that uh, people have pointed towards. Now, when things came to a standstill, everybody was bearish. You look at banks, banks stopped lending to people because they didn't know whether you know, the dollars that they were going to get back could be recovered. So we started looking at things very practically because as a media organization, your job is to basically make sure that you bring out the facts as you know them to be. And so we started hosting these webinars as you've been doing so successfully, Andrew, and I must compliment you on you know, the work uh, Hogan Law has been doing in this. It was about bringing industry, you're bringing consumers, and they were discussing solutions. There were conscious debates to talk about, you know, what is the, you know, what are the positives that are there in, in the markets today? And people could see that how were others adapting to change? Uh, you know, everyone was finding a way to get out of the hole they were in. And it's through these conversations that you were able to provide some mechanism for people to get hope. And at a time like this, it is about hope. You know, people are really in a state where they don't know people had lost jobs, businesses were struggling, you look at the tourism sector. So when we were getting people around and having these webinars and these discussions and the forums on, on our networks, you were able to actually, you're not giving solutions. It's not about saying, you know, covering about what the problems are, but you're allowing people to understand that there is some light at the end of the tunnel. And that is what builds this element of positivity as we go forward. And Africa is no different. What we're facing there is absolutely no different. So, you know, you look at examples of where people have done well. You look at the UAE, for instance, you know, the government here has done phenomenally well. You take case studies of this and talk about those. Uh, and that's how people have got around it. You look at Rwanda, it's a case study in Africa on how they've managed their uh, uh, issues. So it's not just talking negatively. It's about bringing out these positive stories. And if, in these times of crisis, it's not just news agencies like us, but all organizations that have to you know, help build this optimism. Yeah, I think people underestimate the, the role of both the media and everybody in um, creating the right mood or psychology. It can be very, uh, very depressing, can't it? I mean, just picking up one point of that, I mean, I've, a lot of people over the last year or two have been talking about brand Africa and how the brand of Africa underplays the reality of it. I talked a lot about this on previous podcasts with Lucy, Lucy Quist and Samela Zabari recently. Um, and Africa is seen as higher risk than elsewhere. Now, you have businesses in a whole load of places. And the Africa Union itself has been calling for a, what they call a new paradigm, 
with enormous opportunities. How can the needle be moved, do you think, on on the brand of Africa, not just through CNBC, but as a, as a business? Well, I think, you know, when you're talking about the African Union and, you know, what the World Bank or the IMF, uh, you know, uh, mm. normally talks about, they're looking at, you know, policies and frameworks very holistically, you know, it's almost from 30,000 feet. The serious challenges that I see that we face are in the implementation uh, in Africa. Yeah. And what we also have to understand, which is a bit different from some of these uh, conversations, is that Sub-Saharan Africa is made up of very small and fragmented and diverse countries. And each of these are of very different stages of their evolution. Now, they have their different strengths and weaknesses. That, and integrating them through a common thread or looking at it through a you know, unified lens is very difficult. There are reasons why Africa is seen uh, as higher risk. And you know, a large part of it deals with economic development. Uh, you know, if you even look at infrastructure, which has been historically mm. so far behind other countries. Africa has become a dumping ground today for products and services because they don't create enough uh, you know, goods and services of their own, despite the fact that all the resources are sitting here. There's been little or no effort uh, towards transformation in most of these countries through you know, uh, well-thought-through policies. There's also this historic negative perception of safety and security uh, uh, where even media companies have played a very detrimental role in how Africa is viewed in terms of risks and even yeah. uh, you know people coming and investing. Despite the fact that you've got all these blocks, whether it's you know the African Union or you know the various uh, regional blocks, you find that eventually it's all determined by uh, personal interests and agendas of countries. Whether you like it or not, the the powerful countries within these blocks have always driven a very strong agenda. So, and then there's no collective mechanism. And I've been you know, talking about this historically for a long time, even when you go to the World Economic Forum, Africa is not represented in, in a holistic manner. The African Union actually should be playing a much stronger role in projecting what the strengths of the African continent are. But it's never like that. You'll have you know, fragmented participation with everybody going, carrying their own little stories there. But there's no dominant presence of the African Union at these kind of international forums. So I feel that, you know, there's a lot that needs to be done. And if we have to see this transformation taking place, I believe that a lot needs to be done in particularly looking at the current uh, change after COVID-19. We have to look at localization. We have to, you know, this whole concept of globalization has to change once again. We have to look at more indigenization. We have to look yeah. at education of our people, look at uh, reforms in the financial services sector, which to my mind is the worst and the greatest problem that sits today in, in terms of development. And then get this view of thinking long term because our people are thinking very short term. And if there's anything that, you know, has to really change, it has to be through draconian policies, whether it's on, you know, export of raw materials, uh, whether it's on our financial services, and we need to start working mm. on the strengths of the continent. You know, all countries in the world today, where you see these disagreements between America and China on uh, on trade, it's all because of reciprocity. And you know, there is no reciprocity towards Africa. Uh, there's no money reaching the grassroots level, uh, you know, at the SME level in uh, uh, in our countries in Africa. And there's a reason because it's all. We, the financial markets are just not geared towards supporting the farmers or getting to the SMEs. 
uh, the education sector is in a disarray in most parts. If I could just pick up on the education side of things, because Africa is growing so fast that it's going to, you know, in, in, a, in a number of years, it will overtake all the world's major competitors in workforce terms. But at the same time, an, an uneducated workforce, which remains unemployed, will become increasingly disenchanted. So there's a massive opportunity and a massive risk there. How do you think this aspect should be I addressed? I think you know, on the education side, you've got to look at it from two perspectives. One is where is the, uh, the market going demographically? As you know, we're going to go get into uh, being a continent of 2 mm. billion people. So it's going to be a huge explosion as far as the, uh, the size of the market is. And people are seeing this as a packaged opportunity for the future. But as you rightly say, the, the uneducated workforce is going to pose one of the biggest challenges for, uh, uh, for the governments in the future because people do require to be gainfully employed. So this is a very complex problem that the uh, that the continent is going to face. And I think a, a large part of the solution is going to lie with changing the structure of the education system in totality, because we are still following the very legacy uh, kind of you know, system in terms of policies, which are no longer relevant to our times. Uh, you know, kids today don't want to you know, get educated with a degree. They'd rather learn a skill. They'd rather look at stackable programs and say, look, if I have to be a plumber, then why don't I become a very good plumber? If I have to be an architect, why don't I become a very good architect? What's the need for all these peripheral things that I'm being put through? So I think, as I mentioned to you earlier, you know, you've got to really go back to the core of who your consumer is. And I think if we look at yes. what needs to be done, make sure that people get qualified is not going to be through regular degrees. It has to be done through more vocational training, more skills-based training. And that's the only way you'll be able to make sure that people, and then there's a huge skills audit that countries do. Every country does a skills audit in terms of, you know, where their investments are going to go. You know what, where the FDI is coming, you know where you need to develop. You know that if there's an oil industry or you've had an oil find, you're going to require different categories of oil workers. Where are they going to come from? So either they're going to come from overseas, which is going to be short term in terms of uh, capacity building, and it's going to be expensive. So rather than rely on external means of helping helping build your own uh, human capital, you've got to plan for the future and say that, look, if we're going to be becoming an oil or an energy uh, uh, intensive industry, let's build that capacity, do R&D in that. You've got to actually build grassroots institutions around these kind of developments. And this is what we've been trying to explain to the government, build centers of excellence around what you need into the future. Mm. And that's what TAG is looking at long term. You know, we're looking at STEMs, we're looking at laboratory-based education. We eventually want to build on sciences, we want to build on computer skills, data analytics, things that are going to help kids of the future. Because you look at how these children today want their future to be, it's going to be all technology based. And that's the way we got to look at it. And you can't be successful if you can't even provide them basic computers, laptops, or even connectivity to their homes. Because tech is obviously going to be the enabler and actually in African terms should allow it to make that the famous leap, which people always talk about. I mean, you, you, you're a well-known investor in startups. What, what, what are the most exciting things you can see at the moment coming down the line on the tech side? 
uh, to support what you've just said around education and, and business the, when you sit with the generation you suddenly realize what and how much you don't know in fact i had set up small teams within my businesses when i started doing reverse mentorship i had these young kids tell me what i don't know because that's the only way to learn and they talk a language you don't know they consume that's in a way they don't know you know if you look at it practically in today's <laughs> world so many things have disappeared from our our lives you know you look at the telephone at home it's gone the cameras they've gone mm-hmm. the way things are going to happen on the tech space uh, you know when i go back now into the 80s when india leapfrogged on technology and looked as technology yeah. as a means for the future i think the same is apply into africa uh, and there were certain things that were already happening there you know things like internet banking was happening and if you look at the consumers particularly post covid everybody wants things delivered when they want it the way they want it and i think they want that ease and the comfort of this demand supply uh, relationship now anything that can be done to technologically impact that is an opportunity so we see it in everything that you do today you know i was on a boat yesterday with my son over the weekend you know we'd gone out into the sea and Uh, the first thing he tells me is that look uh, we needed something we needed some more ice and he says you know we need to have drones supplying ice to people who are, and there were hundreds of people out and he said you know if somebody was actually supplying ice we could uh, it's a business now you know it's a small example of how the young generation thinks it's uh, they are all mm-hmm. thinking about servicing a need and if your business can be impacted by technology you need to adapt to it now you can't wait till tomorrow but at the end of the day i think that um the current crisis is it's focused in minds on individual responsibility and what leaders have to do and people have talked a lot about the virus leveling things up but the facts tend on honestly to the contrary that it actually makes things less level and i know that for a long time you and your family have focused on support supporting development and things like that so tell me tell me a bit about this and why you think it's really important for people to take individual responsibility to lead in this and you know this is obviously it comes straight from the heart and uh, uh, you yeah. know i've been uh, you know part of the business building the businesses and a lot of the soul and the compassion comes from you know the partnership that i have with my wife and she's been looking a, mm. a lot into our development on our side like in any family i think you know as you're growing and you know one of the things that both my wife and i and this comes straight again you know it's straight from my mother because she was involved with a lot of this work she worked very closely earlier with mother teresa and had set up a vocation center in dehradun which is uh, a city of india and we looked at the uh, the realities in a place like south africa and we found that there were a lot of orphanages there and we felt that supporting orphanages and some of these kids you know had they were bitten by rats they were infested by aids we felt that these kids had no chance they would die if somebody didn't help and a lot of these orphanages were unsupported so we started actually looking at those orphanages that actually were below the radar and started helping them with basic things and that's how you know we started building it into a structured kind of a, a trust that we set up as a family and now it's grown over the last 10 12 years where you know we've got a few missions in it which we are following very clearly so orphanages remains a very important part we support them in uh, in south africa in uh, ghana we do some work with a few uh, including some destitute women uh, charities there and closely with a few in uh, in uh, ghana as well we also then found that since we are in the education space giving uh, scholarships came very easily to us 
So we've given millions of dollars in uh, in uh, scholarships and fee uh, assistance to a lot of uh, students who come to us. We've also started paying for the tertiary education of children coming from wanted families. So we're putting kids through universities and in uh, in South Africa, in Rwanda, in Ghana, uh, and in a lot of cities in India as well. So I think it's not about how much and what you can do. I think every human being should get this habit of helping others because it's only through these acts of charity that you'll be able to help society in general. And I think it's a very important part of every business and of every human being. I mean, just on finally, what 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 makes you look forward? What's the most positive sign you can see for the? Next? I think it's uh, you know I'm an optimist by nature, and you you know I yes. wrote an article recently on the theory of uh, mitigation of risk mitigation, and I believe that you know intrinsically you have to be a positive human being, which is something we've talked about. And unless unemployment yes. is stabilized, I think there's going to be some serious issues and. If positivity has to come, this has to be addressed by the different stakeholders until we get to recovery. And if you look at it, it the heart of it is the development of our uh, small and medium enterprises, the SME sector. And as you know, that you know almost seventy percent mm. employment is created there. Now, unless we see a revival of the SME sector, this is where the pain is today. And if we don't see a revival here, there is going to be an issue. You know, you look at governments; they're playing their part in the sense. You look at South Africa. You look at other parts of Africa. Governments are through various relief measures trying, but they don't have all the answers. Neither do they have the balance sheet to support every. They don't have the kind of corpus that you need to put everybody back to work. But the SMEs can do it. Now the problem is that the banks have not played their part. Banks have been given a lot of money and resources and policy changes to recapitalize. We look at their balance sheets, but they have actually not passed this on to the SME sector. In fact, it's the contrary. They are asking for collaterals, hundred percent collaterals from small businesses to loan them money at a time like this, and nobody can afford it. If he's got a hundred percent collateral, he doesn't need the money. And unless these kind of reforms come there, you know, you look at a country like Nigeria or Ghana, they're charging you twenty-six percent, thirty percent. It's uh, you know, this is robbery. It's Uh, they cannot be doing this endlessly to uh, uh, to the small businesses name lending and big business lending continues but again the big businesses which are the listed companies are not working with the sme sector so you still look at the stock market flourish where they are still looking at quarter and quarter growth they're trying to optimize save costs and this is not the time to be doing those things so i had even recommended mm-hmm. as a measure in one of my conversations with somebody that look stop the markets for two years Now that, it's not a great solution in the sense nobody wants something like this, but money is being made at a level which does not come back into the real world. It's money being made by a handful of people on top. The cash is not rolling back to the grassroots level, and this is what you've got to really look at objectively and say, look, unlock these balance sheets. There's trillions of dollars sitting there, and it won't take time for these companies to get back into those that level of profitability. But for two years, put some measures that this money comes back into the SME sector, and I believe that unless these kind of reforms are done, draconian as they may sound, we will never be able to bring this parity that we are talking about. We talk about equality. We, you know, there are endless discussions on these matters, but nobody has the will to actually make it happen. And I think this positivity, if it is to be looked at in the future. Can only come through these kind of serious reforms, and if we haven't learned anything as a society, as a people today, 
we will never learn again. It'll take another hundred years before we get to a position like this again. And so this is a, a big opportunity, you think, to, to make those changes. Absolutely right. Rakesh Wahi, head of the ABN Group. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you.